Hey, welcome to a bonus episode of ICEP Connect. Um, ICEP is a international organization for health and physical education and higher education. Um, you can find a lot of information about what they do. It's a great organization at ICEP.org. That's A I E. SEP.org. Um, they started having a one hour ICEP Connect meetup the last Friday of every month. It's moderated by Dr. Fiona Chambers and Dr. Louise McQuaig. Um, it's a great conversation. Uh, we had about um, 80 people on the conversation. And if you're interested, um, you can join ICEP as an organization. It's actually very inexpensive to join. It's about 30 euros a year for the membership. Our annual conference next year will be in Banff, Alberta, Canada. It's a beautiful town, beautiful area. Um, it's happening June 9th to the 12th, 2021. So um, here is the recording from the May 29th uh, ICEP Connect. Uh, second uh, ICEP Connect. And uh, just to, for any of you who have never been on one of these calls before, um, my name is Fiona Chambers. I'm the head of the School of Education in University College Cork, which is the screen behind me, which uh, is not my home, which some people think it is, but it's actually not my home. Um, and basically, uh, this particular event is part of ISEP's uh, opportunity to link with all of you across the world. That's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to um, basically, uh, I, I suppose, discuss things that are very relevant to our field in the current pandemic and beyond the pandemic, eventually, when we get out of this, this uh, particular space. And uh, for this particular event, um, I, I would just want to remind you of what ISEP is about. And ISEP is a worldwide family with a shared interest in impacting the quality of physical education, physical activity and sport pedagogy through high quality research. So we will be talking about research as we're chatting uh, with our, our guests um, this afternoon um, or this morning or whatever time it is where you are. And I know my, my colleagues Louise and Cassandra will remind me that it is on, it's 2 a.m. in Australia. So they're, they're thrilled to be here, I would say. My, my other job in relation to ISF is um, I'm the Secretary General and I work very closely with, with Mark Close and with all of the ISF board. And um, I want to give a shout out to a number of colleagues who have inspired us to do this. Doug is, is our guest today, but Doug Leddy was certainly somebody who inspired us to do this. Also Sue Watman um, and other colleagues like um, Jamie McMullen and Risto Martinen. There are people who have actually inspired us to do this. What I'd ask you to do for the purposes of this call is to switch off your video and to mute yourselves. And what we're going to do, how this is going to run, is we're going to introduce you to our guests, to Doug and to Elka. And once we've we started the conversation with them, please feel free to use the chat function. And as you're using the chat function, you can actually uh, just um, put in your questions. And then we will find that uh, Louise is going to pick up some of the questions, as will I, and we will put them to our guests um, uh, this afternoon. So. The title of what we're talking about this afternoon is Pete and the Pandemic, and we want to focus very heavily on the, um, the legacy of what's going on currently. And um, so the legacy from Praxis, a Praxis point of view, but also, um, I suppose, looking at uh, what type of research we should and could be doing in this pandemic that's both um, ethical um, and uh, values bound. Okay, so just making sure that we're, we're doing, <coughs> excuse me, the right things in this, uh, in this time of great crisis. So to start with, I want to introduce you to both of our, our colleagues, our esteemed colleagues. 
um, to Doug, Gleddy, and to, to Elke. And I would like Doug, first of all, to introduce himself to all of us, if that were possible, please. It is possible. So it's, uh, it's 10 o'clock here. So thanks to those of you who are in uh, 10 o'clock AM here in uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And thanks to those, especially like Louise, who it's 2 a.m. for her. But uh, yeah, so I'm. Uh, thanks for the invite, Fiona and, and ISIP as well. And uh, I am a uh, associate professor at the University of Alberta, uh, which is one of the top five universities in Canada. And I'm also the incomings, I'm the president-elect uh, for our national health and phys ed organization, which is called Physical and Health Education Canada. And I'm just repping that brand here on my shirt. Uh, and uh, I'm also a co-chair of the next uh, ISIP International Conference, which will be in Banff, June 9 to 12, 2021. Uh, so mark your calendars. And hopefully we can all get together in person in Banff instead of on this, uh, on this call, which is also good, but not as good as being together in Banff. Elke, would you mind doing the same, please, and introducing yourself to all of us? Thank you. Sure. Hi, everyone, and thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you to ISAP, my colleagues everywhere, and it's really hard for you and in Australia. I'm sitting in Germany. It's 6 o'clock in the evening, and uh, I'm professor uh, for sport faculty at the University of Dortmund. At the moment, I'm also the head of the department. I'm responsible for around about 50 persons and thousand students. So I'm quite uh, all the time involved in everything that is happening with the pandemic. And so Elke, the, the audio is, is yeah, just implement structures. I will try. Thanks very much. Sorry. Now it's, this happens. And perfect. And I'm going to ask the others to anyone who has a video on, if you just switch it off, just to give us a chance. And including my good self, I'm going to switch off my video um, and my audio just to give Elke the best bandwidth. Is it better now? Way better. Okay. So you okay. So I'm professor for sport pedagogy at the TU Dortmund University in Germany. And uh, as head of the department, I'm responsible at the moment for around about 50 uh, persons and 1,000 students. So I'm quite involved in everything that has uh, to do with the pandemic and the implementation of structures that could work for everyone. So thank you very much for inviting me. It's quite an honor to give you my experiences or observations. How is my daily life with the pandemic at university in PE teacher education? Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Elke. So I'm going to just ask Doug, could you tell us who inspired you to, uh, to be involved in physical education and to train teachers to be uh, PE teachers? Who, who is that person that you can call out that inspires you? You know, I think um, I'm going to call out my mom um, because she was always the person who in our family organized the physical activity, whether it was backpacking or bike rides or whatever, that was her, that was her thing. And so, um, you know, she's not a phys ed teacher, she's a nurse, um, but just her commitment to, to being active and being outside, that's something that I take a lesson from and, and uh, have certainly committed to in my own work. 
Great. And yes, so often it is the mom. That's very, very interesting that it's your mom that did that for you. What about you, Elka? Who's the person who, who's responsible almost for what you do today? For every, it's also boring, but it's also my mom who ah, took no, me. <laughs> yeah, actually, it yeah. took me all to the physical activities and I've been three years old. So then I started very early in my career of track and fields. And lastly, it's probably my PhD supervisor that guided yeah. me to PE teacher education. Yeah. That is uh, Petra Gistuber. Yeah. Yeah. You're, so you're both, you seem totally passionate and you totally get what this is about. But there must be things that really um, drive you forward. So, Doug, could you tell me what's your superpower in this pandemic? And in, in physical education, teacher education, what would you call out as your superpower? What are you bringing? I think my <clears throat> superpower is the ability to get outside and be active in any weather, no matter what. There's no bad weather, only bad clothing. Okay, I like it. <laughs> and over to you, Elke, what would you say? Tell me. <laughs> I would say my superpower is that I never give up, even uh, if, if it's getting yeah. hard. So that I'm yeah. quite flexible and see everything as a challenge. Okay, well, cool. And Doug, can you tell me what's your kryptonite? Yes, well, you should have guessed this one, Fiona. My kryptonite is not being able to get out on the dance floor with anybody right now. <laughs> yeah, but that'll happen. That'll happen. Keep training there, Doug. And yeah, what it, about yeah. <laughs> It's not good. It's not good. <laughs> and what about you, Elke? What would you say is your kryptonite? Uh, I don't know. Probably sometimes could be difficult that I would like to be too perfect. That's getting sometimes too stressy for everybody just around me because I just want to get it right. And if it's not right, yeah. then yeah, it has yeah. To be and that's but it's really honest. It's really honest, but that can be a really good thing. So, so then in the pandemic, as we lead into this conversation, um, how how has it impacted your work in Peach? Like, what are the major challenges and problems that you're facing at the moment? in physical education, teacher education? What are the things that are hitting you every day of the week that's really, really hard to, to grapple with? What would you say, Doug? Well, on a, on a first note, um, I'm supposed to be on sabbatical. So oh. <laughs> it's, it's Gosh, been, a, yeah. uh, been yeah. an interesting last few months of sabbatical, which in some ways it, it hasn't shifted too much. Um, yeah. because I was at home more anyways. But yeah. I think the, the biggest, to me, the biggest issue has been just the overall uncertainty because the rules change every second day, especially towards the beginning of the announcements. Um, my wife is a junior high teacher, so she, she teaches grade, grade seven, eight math. And, yeah. you know, literally one day schools were running and there was an announcement on Sunday that there's no more schools and we're going to figure it out. And so working with teachers um, to figure out what this looks like in physical education. That was the first piece is just working yeah. with in-service teachers to do that. Yeah. Then, you know, we immediately shifted at, at U of A, we went to all online classes and we actually, mm -hmm. the board of governors and the general faculties council made a decision to switch any course that was in the middle of being done, regardless of whether it was online already or not, was going to move to a credit non-credit model. Mm -hmm. And so, and that was basically to protect students and protect instructors. Um, okay. And then the next step was, you know, for spring summer classes, it was all online. And now we've, last week we received our guidelines for the fall. 
which is that everything will be online except for some exceptional cases, some clinics, some labs. You can apply to have a smaller group um, meet in person, but you have to meet certain criteria. So our teaching team here in elementary phys ed, we met together and we decided we would not apply for uh, extraordinary circumstances, basically, and we're going to try and do this all online. Well, um, yeah. for a number of reasons, and I can get into those later. But so I think the uncertainty is the big thing. And then, you know, for me, a large part of like, I, I work in elementary education, and most of the teachers that I work with are elementary, elementary generalists. And so for some of them, they didn't, they didn't have they didn't grow up with great phys ed experiences, or great health experiences, for that matter, some of them did, but a lot didn't. And so a big part of what we do in our department and in our program is we we connect with students we have them connect with each other through physical activity through movement that idea um you know that concept of uh a journey of physical literacy and and moving forward and connecting and the joy of movement and meaning and all those things it's really hard to do online so you know we'll do our best but that's what really is irking me right now is not being able to have my students engage in social dance together, not being able to have them play cooperative games and share equipment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the biggest bugbear, I suppose, the, what, what is our subject in this, in an online context, what happens to it and how can we, how can it be still authentic? That, that's a huge question. Really, really important. Elka, are you seeing, are you seeing something different or, or similar to what Doug is talking about there? No, actually, it's good to see that we're struggling all with the same problems. So, mm-hmm. unfortunately, I'm not in sabbatical. I wish I would. <laughs> uh, actually, but really, I could add to all what Doug said is uh, all the implementation of physical activity courses, uh, respecting the hygiene criteria. Um, actually, we, we can start at the beginning of June with some of the physical activity that are not considered as risky so there's no body contact so we will start with tennis badminton and something uh, and all that there's no body contact the other thing that i also see is uh, we implemented online courses for all the theory courses like sport pedagogy sport medicine and something like that but although there there are not only challenging on the technical side there are also challenges for example you can make your students read some texts, you can give them articles and, and exercises, but I'm really missing the critical discussions with them. Yeah. Yeah. So I really feel, for example, I have a, an, an online course with very young bachelor students and they reproduce many, many, many gender stereotypes. And it's so difficult uh, to make them think critically with yeah. written exercises about their stereotypes. So, and I know in, in a discussion in real life, there would be 20, 30 minutes and we could exchange uh, perspective. So I would say it's okay, we can do the courses in theory, but it's not the yeah. same and they are really missing um, certain aspects. And the other thing is for me at the moment, um, in Germany, students pass four months at school as a kind of a mm-hmm. traineeship, and they're mm-hmm. accompanied by me from university. And uh, they started in February, and they spent four weeks at school. Then, they, then the school was uh, closed, 
Yeah. And now they're at home because actually physical education doesn't, is suspended. So even mm -hmm. if school starts or there's a kind of restart of schools, physical education is suspended. And what PE teachers are doing is they just give them uh, exercises for their students. And that's the question, is it really sport education if you just uh, tell your students do just some push-ups or rope skipping? Yeah. So it's yeah. fine yeah. To, to fight sedentary time, but it's not the kind of physical literacy that we would like to to, to, to get in a, in a kind of sport education. And for me, there's really the challenge to, yeah, to, to prepare students for this situation. How can we transfer physical education in this sense via online uh, seminars or online formats? And another point that is probably typical for Germany is that our students have to pass a sport motor qualification test before mm -hmm. They can start with their studies in, in uh, PE. And we weren't allowed to do this sport motor qualification test. Every year, 300 students pass this test and we had to find alternatives that might lead also to the question, do we need a sport motor qualification yes. test pre yes. uh, education? So what is the level of or skill level that a PE teacher needs in, in motor competencies? So... Yeah, and it seems before I before I go over to Louise and some of the questions that, that are coming in on the chat, it seems to point to a really really interesting research opportunity to see what is needed for a, a student teacher as they move through. So tracking them now without that motor competency test and seeing you know where do they end up in terms of, of that. Um, and Louise, do you want to start feeding in some of the questions from the chat, or will I ask one more? Can't hear Louise, so I'm going to just ask it. Um, what's what's come to the fore um, in terms of how teachers are having to deal with this situation is there's an awful lot of homeschooling going on. So before the parent was a partner-ish, but now they really are an educational partner. So how can Pete help student teachers to work with this new version of partnership? Because you're almost devolving responsibility to the parent and you're relying on the parent to help you to do this. Do you understand me? So what are the implications, Doug, for that maybe? Would you comment on that before we move to some of the questions from our colleagues? Sure. Um, I think it's like, it's interesting in our, in our practicums that were still going on, the, the teacher practicums um, during, the, during the pandemic when everything shut down, um, we actually moved student teachers out of the school. And I get why that happened because teachers were dealing with things. But if we're still online in the fall, um, we have a responsibility to work with our teachers because we are we train them for whatever context they're going to be in. And yep. already, like, so I have 36 hours in my elementary curriculum pedagogy for phys ed class. Um, so I can't, you, you can't teach anyone everything there is to know, but it's about being an inquirer. It's about being a lifelong learner. I think... Mm -hmm. Uh, beginning to incorporate more um, acknowledgement of the current reality, being able to incorporate more um, pieces on how to, how do we use online to connect? How do we yeah. Um, yeah. listen to families? How do we take care of um, inequities in access to technology and in access to uh, equipment, parks, playgrounds, those kind of things too. 
So I, I really enjoyed the, the last, uh, I wasn't able to attend because I'm not as tough as Louise and I, I didn't get up at four in the morning to attend Kathy Armour's chat. But the thing that really struck me about that is, yeah, so, you know, Joe Wicks is doing whatever and it's, it's maybe not for Zed, but he is connecting with people in different ways. And how do we use that? And how do we recognize that we, we can't do what we've always done and we might get back to it later. But so I think it's critical to have our, our new student teachers engage with that and then to shift our courses a bit not not entirely but to say how do we connect when we can't be face to face and let's talk about that and chat that out together yeah which is really interesting and interesting like it's the way in which you prepare them and the mindset and the disposition that you inculcate so they can handle that um, and that they can bring other partners on board to try and really reach the end goal of PE. Elke, do you have any comment in relation to the parents becoming a, a, the third, almost the, the partner in education? Any comments on that? Yeah. Probably the biggest point would be, in my opinion, that this kind of homeschooling reproduces or even, yeah, is, is reproduces social inequality. That is yeah, uh, huge, already huge. discussed a lot in, in Germany. We have many um, daily reports from, from teachers saying that they even um, can't reach half of their students. So they are totally lost. They are not connected via internet. They, they yep. even try to, to um, look for them at home. But uh, even sometimes parents don't want the teachers to come to their houses. So we even have reports of teachers that might be struggle with aggressive behavior uh, from parents. So maybe what we try now at the moment uh, to, to do with our students that normally should be at school now in their traineeship because actually they're not allowed anymore at schools because even if the school restarted, it restarted per day with always one class. So with 15, 20 children and Actually, every school said we don't need the PE teachers anymore. So they're yep. even not allowed at classes because they're saying that, for example, 15 children per class are allowed. So if you come, there won't be a child that cannot come because you're too. Yeah. Okay. So, so we try wow. to work with them on online formats, but more than an online format like doing some push-ups or rope skipping like we have many many examples on youtube from sport association that actually um yeah jumped into the situation and they even took the chance to to pro yeah actually to promote their physical activity or their sport we have for example basketball associations showing how to do some exercises at home and we try yeah to work with our students on, on videos or online formats that try to, to transmit the kind of sport education and the physical literacy. Yeah. So kind of theory, kind of how do you train at home? Why is it important? So more than just the, the movement or the physical activity, yeah. also part of health education. And um, yeah, that's the only way we could do for our students. and. Because even at school, the PE teachers are sometimes totally lost or yeah, yeah. just over-challenged. Yeah, exactly. And this is what we're trying to prepare for, for them for, that they really feel that we're, we're supporting them, I suppose, in, in that. Louise, do you have any questions that you want to feed to Elka or to Doug at this point? Um, folks, so thank you very much um, to those who are contributing to the chat. Um, 
we've got a, a, some consistent themes for you both. Uh, the first one seems to be the challenges of, uh, and also recognising the opportunities of a new uh, practicum experience, a new professional experience, and both the benefits and the costs of what that looks like in these particular times. So maybe you'd like to share some of the learnings that you've had. And then I'm just going to add into that one. Um, uh, Risto has raised the point of perhaps the fact that we need to operate morally different from maybe our colleagues because of this embodied responsibility that we have. So two questions there. First, how does the professional experience and the change that we've had, what opportunities has it brought, but also what challenges? And the second one is, um, from a moral imperative perspective, should we be making a stand to be, be different? So you're not to fight over answering first. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this. Um, these are big questions and I, I appreciate the discussion and I, I'm enjoying keeping a, an eye on the, on the chat as well and we'll look forward to reading those later. But I think from an opportunity perspective, um, I do think we have a huge opportunity and I'll take it back a little bit from, from Pete or feet, but um, there's a big recognition of the importance of health and being well. <clears throat> And I think for a lot of people, um, this is something that hit them upside the head and they weren't ready for it. And I mean, none of us is ready for this, but in terms of those people who are able to take care of their own health in various contexts, and I'll, and I'll leave out the, the social uh, disconnects at this point, but just the overall recognition that we need to be healthy and our health is one of the number one things I hope we can use that as a bit of a shift to say, yes, literacy and numeracy are important. And we always want people to be able to communicate and to be able to function in this world. But a huge piece of functioning in this world is health and physical activity. And it's, and we, we are better citizens with it. And that's really what it comes down to. Um, so if we want successful citizens, we need to build health and physical literacy. And if we, if we don't, we're going to be, you know, gobsmacked by, by um, pandemics like this, and not, not from a medical perspective, but from a public health perspective and a personal health perspective. So that to me is a huge opportunity to raise the profile of what we do, to say what, what we teach is relevant. Now, I'm also totally cognizant of, of Elke's concerns too, that, you know, like I have one of my PhD students is a teacher in a school here in Alberta. And as of when the pandemic began, he was no longer a phys ed teacher. He was now an English language arts and uh, a religion teacher. And they just completely removed all the physical education. Now there's been pushback on that. So I think we have to advocate for our, our own efficacy of what we can do. And that means, you know, we have to own up that we're part of the problem. How have we let people down in the past? How have we kept these old stereotypes, these old tired discourses of health and phys ed continue. So we have to shift that and we are shifting that, I think, but that's a challenge. How do we keep our relevance? Um, so I'll leave, I'll, I'll just, I'll stop there on the opportunities and challenges. I'll let LK fill in and then we'll come back to the, the moral imperative. I'm just going to jump in just before Elke responds, just to say that a comment that Peter Sengis mentioned was that yesterday's solutions 
are today's problems. And it links very nicely to what you've just said, that it may have seemed like a fantastic idea the way we did things before and it met a, a, a need as we thought it, but it has created significant issues for us now in this pandemic. It's just a thought. Um, but Elka, sorry, I interrupted you there. So would you mind um, just adding to what maybe Doug has said? Thanks so much. And thanks, Lou, for turfing that question in too. Thank you. Uh, any problem, Fiona? <laughs> All the time when you want to. So probably the challenge is also to rewise probably our curriculum. So, and to ask us what is really important. So what is important for professional development of a PE teacher and uh, probably because Burry is typically, it's typically for Germany, but really the question about the sport motor qualifications or the sport motor skill level. What about, for example, uh, persons who are physically handicapped? Can they become a PE teacher or not? So in the context of inclusion. So probably this could be, and that is actually what we also have done because we can teach now for six weeks instead of 14 weeks some physical activities and we really had to ask what is the most important thing that our students should learn in these six weeks what are the most important competencies what are core what is the core of our subject and the core of our education what are the aims so probably it might be a challenge to to re-questioning us so if we really are, are willing to to let us re-questioning and the other thing is that what doc said is really also we should strengthen our argumentation what is the relevance and what is the contribution of our subject to school and that we are more than just a, a medium to fight sedentary time so how can we implement in online formats actually um, kinds of uh, physical or aspects of physical illiteracy so that we're really more than just a, a subject that can be suspended. Shall I go for the ethical, ethical issues? So would you like to go first, Doug? Yeah, well, whichever, whichever you want to do. Don't fight again, no fighting. Go for it, Doug. <laughs> okay, actually, that's the question I had for, or actually I have it since three, four weeks when we got the allowance to, to do some physical activity courses. Because actually I know in it today, I really experienced from my university rector, it's me who is responsible for the physical activity courses. And if there will be an infection, it will be me who will be the first to report what happened and why do we have, for example, 10, 12 students that got an infection. So I think it's, it was really, a, yeah, it was really an, an, an ambivalence with, uh, I was struggling the last four weeks. How can we create uh, courses that everybody is safe, that there won't be any body contact, that they will, will be every hygiene criteria met. And on the other side, what is not too risky and what is really needed for our students, because actually, there's also kind of pressure from the side of our students. They want to do, they want to, to do their courses. They want to finish their studies. We also have students that will go or will be finished in, in November. So they said, I have to do the, the courses. If not, I will lose uh, one year. So that was really 
hard to deal with and actually we found in our yeah with 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 many many people we found i think we found solution that everybody might be safe and that the core of of the ideas or the core of the physical activities can be taught without uh, getting persons uh, into risk so but that's really a difficult question and Doug, what would you say to that yeah, it is. It is a difficult question, and I've been I've been wrestling with this for the last number of months and trying to write some things on it. And because I do like, we 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 can't keep living in fear, but we also have to be respectful and aware of how to protect people, especially those that are most vulnerable. Which, you know, when I look at Canadian stats, it's our seniors, it's uh, immunosuppressed people. Um, and so we, we certainly have to do that, but I'm, I'm intrigued with the connection to the idea of riskier adventurous play. Like, you know, if, if we really believe we're going to live in a safe world, then we should just sit on our couch. Oh, wait, we can't do that. Cause you'll, you know, that has its own health consequences. So, um, we do have to, I think, find a balance. And I think the, a key value of physical education is playing together, being together, interacting, um, that embodiment has been mentioned a few times. And so I think to some extent, like we've been trying to work with our national organization and with our, our uh, Canadian Research Council on a, on a statement to deans of education to say, we can do this now for phys ed as an emergency measure, but we do feel that down the road, we need to be in physical activity spaces with our students. Um, so I, I'm struggling with this a lot, actually, just figuring out where this goes. And I'll, I'll, I'll finish on um, the idea. So um, there's a teacher in the States who's written a couple books on teaching, and he's, he's a pretty radical guy, uh, Frank Stepanowski, I think is, if I get it right. But he, he talks about what are the key, so if you think about, um, this, this is going to be, a, I'm not going to go too far on a tangent, so don't worry. But if you think about the tuxedo or the quote unquote little black dress, they may change, the tux might have ruffles or it might have a cummerbund or not, or the, the collars might go. The little black dress, the neckline might change, the hemline might change, but they're both classics. They're both things that endure. So his philosophy is what, what do we teach that are the classics that endure? And I think of things like being a critical inquirer, being someone who engages in um, continual professional development and becoming a better person and a better teacher. So how do we weave those things in? Well, while not negating the, the practical skill-based things we need to do at some point, but how do we get our students to be those type of learners and take kind of that, that stand that way? And I, I um, uh, Anne McPhail had a comment about relevance, you know, maybe what we did was relevant in the past, but if we don't, shift how will we be relevant in the future and i think that's a really important question and yes louise i am a bit of a fashionista you know you can tell by my golf shirt and there's no pointy colors on that louise do you have another question to to fling into the mix uh no but it's it's more an emerging one there quite a few focus sort of talking about exactly anne's point there about how do how do we know as a beautiful one from christy how do we prepare for the unknown how do we have a sense of preparing our, our student teachers and our pe 
um, folk for something that we don't know where it's going and what what certainty or what types of um, pedagogies and content and experiences should we be trying to explore and and to use to uh, address that challenge? What are your thoughts? Elke, let's we'll start with you. But actually, that what Doug already said is um, how can we prepare our students is actually there is no routine. There are no resets and actually we have to, to get them as a an reflective practitioner. So they have to learn that they have to adapt uh, to the conditions, to the circumstances and like actually we already tried to, to tell them that every class is different, that every child is different. They, they should get, I seen one question that was, but how do we know what competencies or what uh, content um, do we need? So actually the most important competence I would say is a, a kind of self-reflection and of uh, competency to analyze situations, to evaluate the own practices to, to evaluate condition circumstances and actually to, to be able to take responsibility. So actually the idea of a reflective practitioner that knows that, that things uh, might go wrong, but uh, that you can, yeah, that you can act in, in every situation else to get some self-efficacy and for that they need actually, I would say some kind of theory, but also practical experiences. And probably this situation that the students live now is probably one of the best that could be for them to realize there isn't any reset, there are any routines. I always have to, to look what, what are the circumstances, what are the conditions. So, but it's difficult to say like A, B, C, D. So for me, yeah. it's difficult. So it's like, it's like, and they, they use the phrase, we're building a raft while we're, we're swimming. And some colleagues talk about this idea of not resilience, but anti-fragility, um, a, a way of looking at the world. So it, they talk about the, the really important um, skill sets. Yes, reflexivity, but, but more than reflexivity, what do you do with that? So having a design uh, focus, disposition, having a particular growth mindset, uh, using space on and offline differently so a different way of looking at the world that you can shape and move and change and you don't mind if you if you mess up and I don't know whether all our students feel that way actually they try to that perfectionism thing seems to creep in sometimes which you know all of us have that but it does they're, they're afraid to fail because they are teachers or, or future teachers so what would you have to say to that yeah I, I love the direction of this conversation I think to some extent, though, as as teacher educators, we've we've always been in a position of preparing for the unknown, because we can't we you know we have our students for a set amount of time. They go out into schools, they go out into the world, and the world changes. And you know this was a very rapid, very quick change, but that happens all the time. I mean, I last taught in a classroom as an actual real phys ed teacher uh, fifteen. I think it's 15 years now, um, things have changed since that point. So I'll go back to, I think, what are the things that are always consistent and are always there? And I think we, and um, okay, I loved your, your comment on the being reflective practitioners. That's so important because that allows us to be critical of our own practice 
um, in, in, the, in the best definition of critical. Um, the idea of being relational with other people, whether that's relational online for a time, um, being humble about your own approach to teaching and your own approach to learning. That um, Fiona just mentioned that idea of growth, being someone who is growing. I think those are things that we prepare our teachers to be um, because if there are those things, they can adapt to other pieces. If they're, if they're professionals, if they know how to relate in professional context to other people, um, that's, that's really, really important. And I do like the idea of the, the little black tracksuit, whoever put that up there. That's <laughs> so that was Krista, I think she put that up. Um, and just, yeah. you've mentioned a number of colleagues are mentioning research. Um, and how important that is. And I, I'm looking at research as a backbone of what we're doing. But um, I read something last week from uh, Linda Darling-Hammond, and she said she started speaking about the idea that we, are, we should be omnivores when it comes to educational research now because, because of the, the, what we're living in. We, we, don't, we can't just look to our normal uh, source of research uh, in terms of, of the empirical papers that we read. We need to look elsewhere. So that's one, one thing I'd like you to comment on. And the second piece is th there are serious, I suppose, um, challenges for how and how we how and where we do research now. And uh, some people, and I'm going to throw it out there, are still doing research for the for the centimeters on their CV. They may not be necessarily doing it for impact on the children that they they work with. It depends. So, so in other words, if we want to research for impact, uh, what should that look like now? Because really, there, uh, I suppose a lot of society are looking at us as essential workers, people who can really make a difference in what's going on now. Uh, so two comments, basically, uh, just to do with that, that idea of, of the omnivore in research. And, and I suppose the, the, the research that is, um, there's a moral imperative behind it, or there's uh, ethical considerations behind what we do and how we do it. So I don't mind who takes it. Uh, don't, again, no fighting. Okay, well, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I, I like that analogy of the omnivore. Um, I've often referred to myself as having a bit of ADD around research because I can't decide on a specific methodology or topic. But um, I think there's a difference between taking advantage of a pandemic for research and using a pandemic to shift focus and improve research and improve what we're doing. And I think that's where we wanna be. We want to be in a case of how do we like to me research is about it, it's about changing the world it's about making things better that's why we do it i mean i'm not opposed to to you know lengthening my cv that's okay but although i have tenure so i'm okay but um it it is about changing the world and so the world is changing so how does our research help people adjust to this um by nature research is a little bit slow but um and i'll just mention um uh, like Ash mentioned that some of his students are out, they did an online practicum basically and, and great feedback. So how do we learn from that? But at the same time, and Ash just posted again, but you know, COVID question overload, like there are a lot of questionnaires going out there in terms of let's get your answers now. So I think we have to, and from an ethical research standpoint, how do we walk that line between we, we want to get this knowledge out, we want to help people, but we also don't want to overburden folks. I totally agree. So I love the, the comment about I'm overloaded with COVID questionnaire. Me too. Hi. So 
I also have the feeling that everybody uses uh, this pandemic as an advantage to, to jump into a, a topic and to do research about how satisfied are, uh, satisfied are you with a home office. Today I've got a questionnaire, what role does religion play for you to, to overcome the pandemic? And actually I also would say, or I agree with Duke, to say that we have the responsibility, an ethical responsibility, uh, if we do research on the impact of the pandemic on PE or PE teacher education, we should have the perspective of how can we improve situations, how can we help people to, to overcome uh, the situation and not to, not to uh, overload them with just a questionnaire because it's easy to give them one. So probably we could try, but this also we could try, we could, we could do with, with little research project that even could be done with our students, what works now at the moment in PE at schools and, and what, what is difficult. So it must it hasn't been the, the big large uh, project, but just to get an insight of, of at this moment of experts that are in school now, if they're allowed to go there, and, and to learn from them in a kind of qualitative ethnographical or research uh, perspective. So it's, it's and, we're, we're, and I, that's really what ISF is about, is, is this high quality research. So, so you, you, you've raised some really interesting points where some people are going into spaces where they normally don't research, which is fine, you know, that there's a curiosity there, but we need a, a bit more of a coordinated approach to this. And ISF can offer that because we're in so many different countries. So I, I, I'm just, just getting maybe the, 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 the cogs going in terms of what that could look like, just to get something a bit more meaty and that could be tangible. Because we, when you look into the chat, I mean, there's a lot of similar issues coming up over and over again. One that Anna Bryant raised uh, earlier was, how is practicum going to, to work? So uh, across all these different countries, how are you going to... Um, educate teachers to be able to deal with practicum, to be, be out on, on site and how is that going to look? How are they going to conduct their research on site, etc. So it, like these are really serious issues that we're grappling with and our teaching councils are going to be looking very closely at how we manage them because they may or may not sign off on, on the teachers that come out of our programs otherwise. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get people in and out. I'm like a bouncer, myself and Cassandra, the two of us. Um, Louise, do you have any questions you want to throw in, in at this point? Um, it, it's probably not a specific question that has come out, but it's, it captures the flavour of, of some of the statements and the comments. And that is, what has COVID done to change the way that we establish relationships with our, our PEAT students? So what is our role in flipped learning? Um, have we had to change the notion of teacher educator as, ex, as expert and how have the skills and the talents and, and what... Um, predominantly younger um, early career folk are bringing to the table in the response and how are we harnessing? So the question is, has COVID uh, encouraged us to have new relationships with our students in teacher education? And uh, we'll start with you, Doug. Yeah, just writing my notes on a sticky. <laughs> um, that's, that's a great question. I, um, I think we, it, we have to be intentional. 
we really have to be intentional about establishing those relationships in an online uh, format. Um, I did find when I first started to teach some courses online, and they were, these are mostly grad, grad level courses, I was worried about the connection piece, but I was amazed at how well students connect with each other online. And how one of the things I noticed was in a class, when you have a discussion, you can have this great discussion, but the class is over. And I, sp I specifically remember one um, Pete class that I taught where it was a fabulous group of students. And literally at the end of class, we would all be sitting on the gym floor and talking for another half an hour. But there was always this pressure of we have to go. Whereas in online discussion groups, I've had groups that continue discussing something we've dealt with two weeks ago but they're still adding questions and still talking further as a couple of uh, teachers because that's what they need to do. So I think creating those formats and in the chat here, people have talked about small groups and um, you know, different ideas there too, to, to, to try and connect. And I think it's important at the same time, um, we have to find ways to do that in a meaningful way. Um, so it's not just, hey, I'm your instructor, nice to meet you, and we move on. But it's an actual, um, how can our assignments shift so we get to know people better? Um, one of the things that we do, and we do it in our face-to-face -face class too, is we do a very shortened version of an autobiographical narrative inquiry with students about what is their, what is their current status with physical activity and phys ed and inquire into where they're at. Um, and I think it's important to do that. And that's one way to get to know students. Um, and I'll, I'll finish with, I know one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Haley Morrison is on the call also from U of A here, but she just finished teaching an online health class and she got a very long email from a student just appreciating how connected she felt in the class, both to Haley and to her other students in the class. So it is possible. Yes, and it's interesting yeah. too, uh, picking up Doug, Doug's point, is that um, reorienting our thinking to say that it's not that all students are floundering or struggling in the, these new times. Some students and some aspects of the work that we do in physical education, teacher education, are actually flourishing. And some students are really embracing the opportunity to to harness their digital um, technologies and, and to shift from being learner to expert in some cases, particularly when they've gone out to schools and working with um, teachers in school settings. But also it, it challenges us to think and to move away from some traditional models. Um, just to share that with the exercise scientists in my school, for example, there's real problems and challenges for the clinical exercise physiologists and the nurses and the doctors and the dentists that we work with about how do you do these practical skills. And yet we're seeing that some students are actually flourishing and their skill performance when they're sending in their work is, is improved. So some of the old ways that we have thought about pedagogical relationships are really challenging and what we can achieve. So over to you then, Elke, what, what are your thoughts on those two? Well, actually, I agree with Dude, but I also would like to, to add that probably the technology that we use, or the technology that is allowed from our university due to, to legal aspects is probably old fashioned for our students. I have the impression that actually they like to chat with 
with the, the tool that we use, but actually it's a very old fashioned tool. They probably would like to use uh, other things like Instagram or WhatsApp, but actually we are not allowed to, to get into that relationship with them. So that, we, that was an aspect that we also realized very, very quickly that actually the technology that university can provide is old fashioned and it's not at all um, uh, adapted to, to the needs students probably sometimes have. To, to get into connection uh, with students, for example, I decided to divide them in, in smaller groups and to do some Zoom meetings with them and also to, to, to learn what is going on for them. Because actually, what, there are already some uh, empirical data about what does online formats mean for, for students, not only PE teacher students, is that they are completely overloaded with exercises and they work more than double or three times more than having a, a normal term. So what is the consequence is probably we as a teacher, we are not at all, or, or we don't know how, how long do they need for an exercise, how long must the exercise be and so actually there we also could, could uh, this could be an opportunity or a challenge to, to re-questioning our exercises and are they um, adequate for, for the students and their needs and their interests. So, and uh, to, to get uh, with them into smaller discussions, sometimes I really had the impression it's better than having the discussion with the whole group. So having them with three, four, five students in a Zoom meeting was quite sometimes more fruitful than having them with 30, 40 students. But on the other side, for us as a teacher, it takes more time. So we also have to look for our time balance or, or time resources. And I think, I think we should pick that one up uh, from you both at the moment, because I know uh, and I can do a formal apology to anyone and everyone on this Zoom who I have not uh, responded to on email, as I should, because uh, the point that you raised there, Elke, is that globally there is a sense that educators in the university sector are being worked and half really feeling the demands on this new environment and this new space. Uh, would you like to talk a little bit about that and perhaps what are some of the mechanisms that you've both tried to use to address that or the pressures. Um, we'll keep going with you, Elke, because you, you opened that door for us. Probably I'm not the best model for that. Because <laughs> actually what I quickly realized, the work-life balance has disappeared. So you work at home, you sleep at home. So everything is quite, everything at the beginning it was, it was Sometimes I even didn't know if it's Sunday or if it's Monday. So, because every day is the same procedure as every day. So, there are really some, some, some little, little empirical data from our university saying that this is really the, the biggest challenge for a teacher at university to create this work-life balance, even to create distance from work and my routine is and that is really a good thing i could keep if the pandemic has uh, has ended 
is I do sports every day. So even sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening, but I try to do sports or physical activity. And when I'm at the university, I get it two, three times per week, but now I really do it uh, every day just to, to break uh, up the work and, and to, to, yeah, to, to, to give the sign to my head. Now work is finished. And even if you're at home, though, it's finished now. Yeah. yeah, I think, um, Elke, that's a really good point in terms of just that there, there's no boundaries between where your workspace is and your home space is. And it's, um, I mean, for myself, I, you know, my, my wife, I mentioned, is a teacher and she's working at home. Uh, my daughter, who's at, also at home, is a university student. So she's taking online classes. So we're trying to space out and, um, you know, not overload the internet capability with things. And but from a, you know, from a balance piece, one of the things that I'm seeing a little bit in, and I'll speak to schools before universities again, but I think there's a, there's a danger here that we're going to see a divide because there's a lot of pressure on math and literacy teachers to um, what uh, Ove mentioned on, on uh, the chat about wanted that, that perception of we have to make sure we're giving out lots of work so people don't think we're doing anything or we're not doing nothing. And so those perceptions are key, but what happens when, if a phys ed teacher is not allowed to teach phys ed, then what are they doing? And so we're starting to create a hierarchy of, well, you're a math teacher, so you've got to keep going, but you're a phys ed teacher, so you can just pick up some other stuff. So we have to be aware of that. Um, and I think that's tied into the balance of making sure we're not uh, being too self-important with things. And recognizing that it's that it's okay to fail with something new that you're trying online, uh, and it's okay to be humble and honest with your students and say, "Hey, I've never taught online before. I've I'm figuring this out. So um, I'll just I'm a story guy. So I'll just I'll never forget when I had when we had our first child. Uh, he had a lot of sleepless nights. Therefore, we had a lot of sleepless nights. And I was teaching junior high, and one day I just I had no sleep, and I walked into my class and I I told the students I'm like. Hey guys, Mr. Gletty is super tired because my son was up all night. So just cut me some slack, please. And they did. They were great. The next day, there was a kid in my class like, hey, Mr. Gletty, my sister was up all night. Can you cut me some slack today? And I was like, absolutely. And so I think with our students at university, we can begin to do that. In terms of our work-life balance, uh, collegial support. Right? I mentioned, I mentioned Haley, who I work with a lot. Uh, Lorena's on the call, who I work with a lot. Um, we support each other. We share assignments. We share, hey, I'm trying this new online thing. Here, take my take my um, PowerPoint. Take my Screencastify piece and use it for your own. Share those kind of things and not recreate everything. I think that's one way. It's it's a very kind of pragmatic way, but I think we can start there. Thank you. Thanks, Doug, because it's like we have to call call it out in terms of what is going on for us. And I'm 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 conscious that we're going to wrap this up very, very shortly. Um, and our chat, by the way, all of this is recorded and all will be a link on our, our website. So you can revisit the chat and you can look back to because so many of our colleagues are sharing really, really nice um, questions, but also really nice kind of resources for us to think about. So there was a few interesting points just to wrap that I'm taking from it. Um, 
So, and they link very nicely to an article in Forbes magazine um, by, again, the lovely Linda, Darling Hammond. She talked about closing the digital divide, which we've spoken about in this call, uh, strengthening distance learning in terms of our supports. She talked about, and this was a point that we, we talked quite in a quite detailed way about, uh, the supports for social and emotional learning. It's harder to engage online when you don't have all that feedback that you normally get when you meet somebody in person. The idea of expanding learning time, which is something that we should think about, that it's not about um, almost the, the amount of stuff that you're doing, but giving people lots of room to engage with what you give them. And the last point she raised, which I thought was really nice, and I know it has been touched on here as well, is how we use assessment, that we give people plenty of time to show their learning. So it's formative in the way we're, we're going. So, I mean, we've touched on so many different aspects between with you, Elke, and with, with um, Doug in this call. It's just been such a rich conversation. I think you've been both really honest, really authentic, and really inspiring, actually, in this call. Um, and I really appreciate your time. Um, and just to, to, to say to everybody, as I say, we, we, we're doing this every month, the last Friday of every month. We will take two months break, just to let you know, I was a little breather. Um, and we will be, our next one is going to be hosted by uh, Christy Howells. It will be on early, um, early years, and that will be on the 26th of June. And again, we, we'll send that out through Twitter. Cassandra has been a force of nature in terms of really pushing all of this and getting it out online, etc., and very artistic with it. Uh, so thank you, Cassandra. And she's also a bouncer in her spare time, keeping people off this call and on this call. Um, and um, so what I would say to you is these types of conversations are really necessary in terms of connecting globally with each other. And the more of this type of thing that we do, the better. I know, Doug, you're hosting some really interesting sessions as well to try and keep us connected and socially connected. So when we meet in Banff, that we have a fun time and we recognize each other, that would be a really positive thing. Uh, so what I would say to you is I'm going to turn to Mark Close to give us our, his last few uh, words as president of the organization. And the next time that we're all going to see each other um, is going to be at the end of June. And I thank Elke, I thank Doug, I'm thanking Louise, who has been unbelievable as always, and all of my board, um, ISEP board colleagues that have been on the call and all of these fabulous friends of ISEP. Last point, please become a member of ISEP. We need members. This is what this is about, okay? So to keep this organization flourishing, please join the, the, um, this organization. Okay, Mark, over to you. Yes, thanks. Uh, thanks to all of you. And as you, you saw that uh, Fiona already explained everything that I should be very, very short. Then uh, part in particular, I would like to, and, uh, to underline uh, that Cassandra and Luis, for example, were down under in the middle of the night, and they they attended to uh, this uh, this seminar, and uh, it's a, a real success. And then now you 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 have the right to go to sleep, but maybe short comments. Uh, there are new needs at the moment. Then maybe four question: What are the characteristics of the new context? Second. Who, how is it possible to teach be in these contexts, in that context? Third, three, what are the competences to be developed to teach be in that context? And finally, how to help our students to acquire these competences? I believe there are four questions that research could help people to work there.
and uh, organizing such meeting could provide some food to us and to go further with it. Final comment. We spoke about our concern at the moment in the schools, in the uh, department, physical education and sport departments. But I believe that ISF should also think about in-service PE teaching. Because all physical education teachers in the schools, they are lost. And of course, there is also something for them. Okay, thank you to all of you and I wish you a, a very nice weekend and as Fiona explained, become a member. <laughs> yes, that's the most important message, become a member. So stay safe, stay well, we miss you all as always and we see you soon, hopefully, yeah? And over to Christy for the next one of the ISEP Connect uh, sessions. Thanks everybody, sleep well, some of you, bye, take care.